following presentation is an Elmarva Studios production. Welcome back, Fact Hunters and Truth Seekers, to a very special edition of The Fact Hunter. Tonight, we welcome a very special guest who has been one of the most prolific truth seekers of our time. You can find his work on his website, CorbettReport.com. And as always, all his links will be in the show description. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome James Corbett. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing as well as can be expected given the world's circumstances, (laughs) but thank you for having me on. Yeah, we, we generally start our podcast with uh, as we navigate our way through Bizarro World, because that's really uh, how it seems. Uh, and again, as we spoke before the podcast, we don't ever want to assume that everyone is a longtime listener. So please, uh, if you could take a minute or two and tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. Sure. My name is James Corbett. I am a Canadian born and raised, um, spent a year in Dublin, Ireland, studying uh, Anglo-Irish literature and then Decided to head off to Japan. Why not? Just see another part of the world. It was only meant to be a one-year thing. Just teach some English and see see some and do do a bit of traveling. But it ended up becoming well. It's twenty years and counting at this point, and I've got a family and a home and all of that. So you never know how life's going to work. But in the intervening years, I stumbled down the rabbit hole, the proverbial rabbit hole, as it were, encountering information online about. Uh, 9-11 and false flag terrorism and the um, the banking system and monetary system and global geopolitics and history and science and all of this sort of stuff. And uh, it was at a point in 2000, late 2006, early 2007, when I was being overwhelmed, encountering all of this type of information, essentially for the first time and deciding, well, this is too important for me just to bottle it all up. What am I going to do with it? Well, it's the Internet age why not start one of these newfangled podcasts? And I felt in that time, uh, 2007, when I started the podcast, I felt I was getting into the game a bit late. But actually, as it turns out, maybe I was early or at least on time. And um, as a result of being on the, I think, the the leading edge of the sort of the online independent media phenomenon that's happened in the past couple of decades, I have had the good fortune of building up a massive audience, which I also had the good fortune of losing when <laughs> YouTube nuked my my channels yep. for daring to tell the truth. And I think that was an important um, way marker in the road of where we are in this information war that we're engaged in right now. So as I always say to people, um, please go to CorbettReport.com. That is the, the one-stop shop, as it were, for all of my information. But it's uh, shop in name only because all of the information that I do, everything I do is 100% free. And I ask for people to spread it, use it as a resource. Uh, I hope it's valuable for people. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people like myself and others uh, were dealt a blow like that. You gain an audience. YouTube was originally built on um, content creators. And it, it was kind of a slap in the face to get deplatformed when, you know, here in America, we're supposed to have the First Amendment, freedom of speech and everything else. 
Uh, and then the next thing you know, all within six months, you're kicked off YouTube, PayPal, and you really start to see a nefarious agenda. And that's when you really realized, at least for myself, James, was the things that we talk about aren't just rabbit holes and connecting dots and having cool, you know, doing cool things like that. It's really there's a dark side to what we do and a real side. Yeah. And and that that reality does hit me from time to time. Um, I, I genuinely wish I truly wish that I was totally out to lunch. I wish that I was as crazy as some of my detractors would no doubt like to label me for being such a conspiracy theorist. But unfortunately, time and time again, things play out um, in ways that are well in in line with what I've been saying and many other people, to be fair. I don't think I'm any sort of prophet or anything. I just think I just am able to read white papers and other declare declarations and statements and executive orders and emergency legislation, etc., and understand, oh, the, there's a general trend to world events. Things aren't necessarily just happening by random happenstance. Um, a case in point that might be highly relevant to our discussion was back in 2009 when I had an entire podcast episode about medical martial law, trying to raise the alarm about all of the emergency legislation that was being put into place in the wake of the 2001 anthrax attacks specifically was what was generally That's being right. cited. But in the United States and around the world, this entire infrastructure for a global public health system that would start flexing its muscles, declaring emergencies and mandating vaccines and other quarantines and other such things. And I, so that was one of those things that I, I saw coming from miles away. Um, so the only thing that surprised me when it actually started to come to fruition in 2020 was, oh, they're really pulling the trigger on this right now. Um, but it wasn't surprising in any sense for people who'd been paying attention to it. Yeah. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned, uh, the anthrax issue with, uh, that was uh, Dashiell, right? And, and of course, Podesta was involved with that. And now uh, he's like uh, on top of the food chain for the Center for American Progress. This is one of these big public think tanks uh, that falls in the line with the, the CFR and everything else. So uh, I've, in retrospect, he played the game and was rewarded handsomely like so many other people. Going back to George Morrison, his son gets rewarded. Uh, and this oligarchy that we have uh, in the United States, it's not a democratic republic. It's if you play along, you get rewarded and everyone else <laughs> is is cast aside. Um, all these things are all tied together. I want to get to some of these questions I've had for you. And again, thank you. You've been uh, very generous to come on here. I know you're a very busy guy. Uh, before we get into Bill Gates, the first question I want to ask you is, what was the first rabbit hole that really got your attention that made you think maybe, you know, th this world is not as it is presented? Well, I have cited um, various things that I think were preparatory to my work at the Corbett Report, things that if from my childhood onwards that I, I understood. For example, um, I remember watching back in the 1980s some of the, the JFK uh, questions and conspiracy programming, etc. that was on PBS and other things, raising questions about Lee Harvey Oswald. And I, I always was under the impression, yeah, I don't think it was a lone nut. So... I think I always had some sense of questioning authority. I could even go back to, I remember a fourth grade uh, uh, science class that I was in where the teacher was asking, asking the class, uh, oh, okay, so I, I, it was something along the lines of, oh, do you think this object is going to sink or is it going to float or, or something like that? And, and so they did a vote, you know, uh, who thinks it's going to sink, who thinks it's going to float. And I ended up being on the right side of that vote. I voted, oh, it'll float or something like that, whatever it was. And I ended up being right. 
But then, after I found out, oh, I'm right, I decided, you know, but actually, shouldn't it be like this because of something else? And so I actually started arguing with the teacher, well, why isn't it like this? And I think that was one of the early signs that maybe I, I'm just not satisfied with just being told, okay, here's the answer. No, I want to know why. I want to get underneath the hood of it, as it were. Um, other things that were preparatory to this, um, uh, for example, I remember sitting here in Japan. This must have been when I first got here, maybe 2004, watching the uh, Gandhi biopic. And I remember that scene where um, the uh, Gandhi was leading the protests of yeah. uh, the Indians who were being forced to carry around their papers in South Africa at that time by the, the British uh, colonial powers. And they were protesting this. We're not going to carry these papers around. And they were literally burning them and getting beaten to a pulp and arrested for for such uh, brazen acts of treason. And I remember sitting there here in Japan with my ID card in my pocket that I am forced to carry around as a foreign resident of Japan yep. and didn't didn't even didn't even think about it when I was getting it. Of course, I got to carry this ID and it's got to be presentable to a police officer at That's any right. time if they so choose to ask for it. And it had never really I'm just growing up. I'm a I'm a 21st century kind of guy. Who cares about this kind of thing? That was something that struck me in the face. Like, oh, no, this is something that people really, really, really felt strongly about in the past. And we've been conditioned to totally accept as normal now. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Right. Uh, I remember back in 2006, heading back to Canada for a, a friend's wedding. I was going to be the best man. And I remember making a kind of offhand joke with the customs guy as I'm going through customs. Like, uh, oh, what are you here for? I'm like, oh, to to visit my friend and to watch the flames win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> and he just gives me a kind of like look and write something on my form. Next thing I know, I'm being hauled off for special what? screening, which involved taking everything out and asking about each individual item. Oh, this book you're reading, is it is it a good book? What do you think about this book? <laughs> Thinking like, what is this? What is happening? Uh, here's your journal. Can I take a photocopy of it? I, I don't know. Can you? I'd prefer if you didn't. What are my rights here? I had no idea what was happening. And that was a, a penny drop kind of moment for me. But really the first issue that started me uh, specifically into the Corbett Report was 9-11, 9-11 Truth. And uh, that was because it was, as I say, I'd been quite, I, I'd often been skeptical of authority and, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't the lone nut, but 9-11 Truth was a bridge too far for me for many years uh, oh, that, you know, people will make a conspiracy theory out of everything. But I'd never really looked into it. And suddenly I was encountering this information online that was, some of it was stupid, some of it was unprovable, some of it was interesting, some of it I could even go and look up for myself. I had no idea about things like Operation Northwoods and other such government documents that I could then go and actually read for myself, the actual government documents. Wow, that's crazy. I never knew about that. And that was the snowball that got me rolling down the hill into the rabbit hole, as it were. Yeah, I think 9-11 is uh, the big one for most people in the truth community, because while we all may um, disagree on the, the different layers, was it uh, really a plane or was it CGI? Was it mini nukes, like uh, James Fetzer says, on and on and on. We all agree uh, that the official narrative is complete hogwash. And that goes all the way back to what you said uh, a minute ago was when you were younger um, as truthers, as long as we can get people to question the official narrative, we've done our job. I've said many times on my podcast, I don't want people to believe what I say. And this is the official word. I just want to give you enough information to prove to you that, that most of the things that you were told by the, the mainstream media 
Uh, the news organizations are at best a little bit of truth uh, smeared with lies and propaganda. So if we can just get people to question the narrative before they make a decision, let's just say, I don't know, there's a guy in a white lab coat who tells you you should get a vaccine. If you question it and look into it before you get it, instead of just believing that guy who has a white lab coat and a name tag and stands behind a podium, then maybe we have a better chance. Humanity has a better chance of survival. What are your thoughts on that? I agree very much with what you're saying, but I think it's so important to understand the context of this and to get that right, because certainly, yes, we need to be skeptical of authority and not just simply take some authority figures word for it, because that is how we are led into traps and uh, led down blind alleys and led into slaughter pens, etc. Um, but on the other hand, we also have to apply critical thinking to all of the information we're receiving, whether that is from mainstream authoritative sources or from independent sources. Absolutely. And unfortunately, over the years, yes, I have found, of course, a lot of people now are questioning reality on all sorts of different levels. Yep. Okay, that's, as I say, that's to the good. But uh, I, I think... There, as in the mainstreaming of conspiracy theorizing that we've seen over certainly the past decade or so, uh, unfortunately, that brings a lot of people who were the type who simply believed and listened to authority figures and listened to the MSM and watched whatever it was, Fox or CNN or whatever flavor of information they liked and simply believed it, are now the people who are watching whatever flavor of independent media news they like and simply believing it again, without using their own critical thinking, critical faculties. So to the extent that we promote and uh, a, a greater understanding of the types of duplicity and techniques that are used to uh, put, put people down blind alleys and fa false turns, etc., that's good. But if people, if we do not show people how to find and source and verify and triangulate information and how to come to a better understanding of the world, then perhaps we end up failing in a different way. That That's a great point as well. And I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, since you, since we're already on the topic of 9-11, let's run with that. I want to uh, throw a few things at you and tell me what your thoughts are. And since we already mentioned it, um, what are your thoughts as far as uh, were they planes? Were they CGI? Do you think it was an Operation Northwoods where Maybe the planes were swapped because they were uh, in the air for quite a long period of time. How do you think that went down? Yeah, well, I'll, I will, of course, preface this by saying this is my speculation. Of course. And yeah. uh, we have evidence in the form of the TV footage, etc., that we've all seen. But as people know, well, how much can we trust what we've seen on TV, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, again, it is it is speculation. And specifically, my point on 9-11 Truth for the past 15 or so years that I've been talking about this has always been, I think the pyrotechnics of that day are themselves a form of distraction or at the very least are the honeypot that get everyone fighting with each other about their specific ideas about of this. Course. My inclination is towards, as you mentioned there, some sort of Northwoods type um, uh, plan. And uh, for people who don't know about that, I would highly encourage you to actually read the Operation Northwoods documents where they talk about such stratagems at that time in the 1960s for yep. getting uh, the U.S. embroiled in a war with Cuba, um, such things as taking planes, uh, uh, commercial jumbo jets, swapping them out for um, military drones that would then be flown and blown up after broadcasting some mayday message were under attack by those dastardly Cubans and using that as a pretense for war, taking entire teams of fictitious people, essentially, 
CIA agents uh, of various sorts who would then be um, swapped out on passenger lists, etc. And this was stuff that the Joint Chiefs of Staff was signing up off on 40 years before 9-11 ever took place. So you can imagine those types of plans, well, certainly exist. And that that certainly, I'm inclined towards that. Uh, I talked to, I don't want to get his name wrong, I believe it is Paul Schreier, um, but please look this up on CorporateReport.com. I talked to him several years ago about his research into the radar gaps and specifically, all of the alleged hijackings took place specifically in radar gaps, um, where we can't specifically know exactly what was happening with those planes. And it very easily could have been a swap out at specifically those moments. So things like that make me inclined to believe that. But again, it is informed speculation. Of course. Um, but it is speculation. There are th- things that we can document, however, that are probably much more important than that. And that's why... Instead of the forensics, I have spent many, many years trying to draw 9-11 truth attention to other issues, such as 9-11 trillions, follow the money, talking about the incredibly important money trail surrounding the events of 9-11. I've done 9-11 war games, talking about the many, 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 many exercises, drills, simulations, etc. that were happening on or around the day of 9-11, but in some cases, eerily almost exactly identical to what was supposedly taking place in real life. Is this real world or exercise? I've talked about 9-11 suspects saying, okay, this is a criminal event that happened. So let's examine it like a criminal investigator. Who would we bring, uh, if, if there was a trial, who would we put on the stand to to find out what they know and what we can find out from that? So I talked about that and some of the figures involved. And uh, I just a, a year or two ago, I did a five and a half hour documentary on Uh, False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, talking about the founding and development and fostering of what we have, what what is being termed Al-Qaeda. What is it and what or where did this organization come from? What has it been responsible for? How do we know that? What what is its relationship to intelligence agencies? It's one of the it's well, it's the longest documentary I've ever done and probably the most thorough investigation I've ever done. And I've noticed most people don't even know it exists. So I hope people who are interested in that would check it out. Again, like all my work, available for free. That that documentary is at CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. Yeah, and there's a lot of things when you get into this and you start peeling back the onions. Uh, there, there's also a lot of coincidences um, with the security agencies. With I think it was Marvin Bush was running. I think it was called Securicom. Um, there, there was just too many coincidences for people to put it aside. And as far as what you were saying as it should have been treated as a criminal case. And of course, the first thing they did was they took the evidence, swept it up and got rid of it as fast as they could. They sent it to China for crying out loud. Uh, and then, of course, all the gold, the money, uh, the shorts on the uh, the plane industry the day before. Uh, just there's so much. And not just the planes. The shorts on the airline stocks right. are the most known. But as I go into in 9-11 trillions, it wasn't just shorts. It was also long, the other side of the trade on military contractors uh, it was also shorts, for example, on some of the, the specific companies that were headquartered in the World Trade Center. There was there was a lot more to that story. And that was an interesting story because it was one that was initially being broken on mainstream television news as the investigation was unfolding. And, hey, we have evidence of informed trading. There were definitely people who knew about these attacks beforehand. And then it just went silent and the SEC ended up destroying all their records about that investigation. Of course. And if I remember correctly, that was right around the same time when the Enron debacle was going on. And Kenneth Lay 
was one of the biggest contributors to the, uh, to Bush's uh, presidential run. So obviously he was close with him. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, documentation to that case got destroyed uh, that day. Oh, and right after Building 7. Yes, sir. Thank you. And then, of course, he, he died uh, mysteriously in Colorado, whether or not he really died or not, is hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, drinking martinis. Uh, I don't know. But there's so many sub-layers to 9-11. And I guess that leads to my next question is, obviously, they had several endgames, the financial aspect to it. But also this slow, um, as we say, they boil the frog. Um, when you and I have long range plans, we're looking at January or February. But the the controllers of uh, the Matrix, they're they're generational planners, right? Uh, I believe when they started building the World Trade Centers, they knew in 33 years they were coming down. That's my personal opinion. Um, so the question is, what are your thoughts of what were their most important outcomes to 9-11? Uh, obviously, money is important, but they have the Federal Reserve. They can print and manipulate a lot of that. Uh, most of it was powers. And uh, what do you think the most important uh, outcomes to the controllers uh, came right. about? Well, it's an important thing to think about because um, at, as I stress whether, when it comes to 9-11 or COVID or any of these kind of big life-changing events, there is a monetary aspect to them. And that is one of the, I think, easiest documentable ways of understanding plots like these and how they function. Because, of course, money is the great equalizer in terms of how do you get people involved in a plot? How do you get people interested in furthering things that they would otherwise maybe not be interested in? Money certainly is that common denominator amongst many of the people. And so it's easy to document and trace and understand in that way. But I think it isn't fundamentally about the money, because as you say, I think money is essentially just the way to keep points in the game, essentially. But the game is for power and control. And in that respect, 9-11 was beneficial to all sorts of different power centers. In fact, almost every sort of power center or authority could find a way to benefit from the events of 9-11. This is why every single world leader stood beside George Bush on that day. We are with you. We are you know what? We're fighting our war on terror as well. So Russia, of course, had those damn Chechens and China has those damn Uyghur Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. Every single world leader benefits from this giant shot in the arm of the war on terror. Now we have a a, a convenient narrative for framing our particular um, uh, wars of aggression uh, in various places. Um, and of course, it isn't just about the war side of it, although there certainly is that in terms of the outward aggression, but perhaps more importantly, the inward aggression. And as 9-11 truthers um, were pointing out for many years, and I think people are finally starting to understand all of this machinery and mechanism for the Department of Homeland Security yeah. and the, the police state and the terror industrial complex that even Colin Powell was talking about several years ago. I, that wasn't meant for this scary bearded Muslim boogeyman out there. It's meant for you. Yes. It is the the bars in the prison yeah. that's meant to contain you. That's it right. Finally, finally, people are starting to understand that, but maybe many years too late. That was one of the few things that I realized during my awakening period that that is. And sometimes I say you've got to credit them for the, this matrix they've created. But when they name an enemy, that isn't specific. Like if I say... You know, we're looking for uh, William Smith. Uh, we're going to war against William Smith. And when you capture William Smith, the war is over. 
But when you say we're going to war on terror, there's no, it has an indefinite uh, life to it. If you're uh, declaring war on COVID, you have an indefinite life to it. And uh, you have unlimited resource when you declare war on these things. So, uh, you know, when you listen, when, when there's a significant event in wor- in the world, listen. To, I mean, words have so much meaning. It's really important that you listen to everything they say, because when they declare a vague enemy like that, you better understand that you're in for a long haul. And also, yeah, listen to them when they speak, because I think sometimes they tell the truth, maybe inadvertently. The terrorists do hate you for your freedom. Oh, yeah. But who are the terrorists? <laughs> it's the question. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, great stuff. Moving on. Uh, let's talk a little, a little bit about Bill Gates. Um, you did, I think that was one of the first videos that really got my attention from you. I think it was a two or a four part series. And and you took it back to his, his father and his uh, alignment with Margaret Sanger and, and really what that family was all about. But first, you know, now that you're not even sure if these people, whether it's an Elon Musk or a Donald Trump, are these people organic in their creation or are these people who assume roles, whether it's through the CIA or, or whatever, and they take on that role and they are either the good guy or the bad guy like WWF. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. Well, uh, I, again, I think this is at the very least, uh, don't listen to me and don't believe just anything I say, but think for yourself as to whether you think that the multi-trillion dollar global economy and everything that hinges on it really is at the whims of just random people and oh okay oh and now this guy is going to be the president of the united states and make all the decisions and now this guy is the richest guy in the world and he's doing whatever he feels like or do you think that these sorts of things are controlled steered at the very least by people who in with riches and power who conspire with each other to maintain and to expand their riches and power um again it only sounds like crazy conspiracy theory when you when you try to um, pose that in the modern context when you look through any era of history of course we understand there's always been conspiracies of oligarchs trying to essentially wield greater power over the average citizen but oh we can't say that these days so in that regard i think that was what i'd say generally about that specifically with regards to bill gates it's very gratifying to hear that that um that documentary series paid off in that way because uh who is bill gates at corbettreport.com slash gates was the product of an intense intense month of work one month a uh two-hour documentary on bill gates it was a four-part documentary and Myself and my video editor, Brock West, were working around the clock on that for a month and managed to get it out. And I I am glad to hear it did have an effect. People who haven't seen it, it goes into the background of Gates in in many ways, including, of course, how he how he came to his virtual monopoly. Uh, It was Microsoft monopoly. How did that really transpire? And uh, is it just the the sort of the random happenstance of, oh, this guy was out, so IBM came to him and tried to uh, license his OS, and he basically BS'd them and uh, sold them something he didn't have at the time, and, oh, he just kind of lucked his way into a multi-multi-billion right. dollar fortune. <laughs> uh, I think there's more to say about that, and I do document that in some of his family connections yeah. to the board of IBM, etc., that might have had more to do with that story. Um, but... The real question then is, so what, what is the motivation of someone like Gates? And again, it, I don't, I think the answer cannot come down fundamentally to money for someone who really was, is one of the richest men in the world. I don't believe those rich lists 
of our really the rich list. But anyway, you get the idea. Someone who does have tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of capital at his disposal. What is his real interest in this? Is it getting a few more points on that scoreboard or is it power and control? And I think that is the probably the more fruitful way of understanding this. And one easy way for people to wrap their mind around this is if they happen to be around in the 90s, as as myself and others were, you might remember that Bill Gates was a widely reviled figure oh, yeah. by a lot of people. Um, he really was seen as this very menacing, evil monopolist who's... How did he get so powerful and so rich so quickly? And what's going on here? That a lot of people didn't like him, and evidenced by the famous pie-in-the-face moment. Um, that I, again, of course, do include in the documentary. One of my favorite but videos. that all went away in the 2000s because Bill Gates, hey, I'm not going to be on Microsoft anymore. Now I've got this foundation yeah. and we're put, pumping all of our money into philanthropy. Well, it turns out, of course, this was a game plan, a PR game plan that was pioneered by the Rockefeller family right. at the early, in the early 19th century. At Mr. that time, you had jo- uh, John D. Rockefeller yeah. Sr., who was... The, probably one of the richest men of all time when sure. you put his wealth into modern day dollars, it dwarfs yep. a lot of the uh, the so-called richest people these days. And he had similarly a PR problem with people recognizing him as the face of evil, yes, uh, the octopus with the tentacles everywhere, the standard oil monopoly. And he turned that around by, oh no, suddenly Rockefeller's associated with the Rockefeller Foundation and this philanthropy and this large, and uh, the Gates specifically and consciously modeled themselves on the Rockefellers with regards to this, as was revealed by his uh, Bill Gates' father in his biography, autobiography. So th- it was a, it was part of a PR plan. And again, what is, what is the ultimate payoff of this PR plan? Well, I think we've seen it uh, certainly over the past few years where Dr. Bill Gates, well, no, but he might as well be because the way he was treated by the MSM as some sort of authority that we should be listening to on any issue of medical relevance, let alone any other sort of field that's outside of his expertise, but he was turned to. And specifically, as you find out later, oh, maybe that has something to do with the uh, millions and millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars of grants that he gives to these various media agencies on a yearly basis through his foundation for their work in basically covering the foundation and its work. So it's, again, there's so much detail there, but um, people can look into that documentary if they want to get really under under the hood of that. Yeah, that that's really great, and uh, I always laugh because um, uh, another worthless fact. But when uh, he was one years old, uh, he Elvis got the infamous polio shot on on uh, Bill Gates' first birthday uh, in King County. Of course, Elvis was the king, so a lot of people uh, always uh, laugh at, at the the little things that line up, because of course he would go on to be uh, one of the the biggest pushers of the vaccine industry. And if this guy is organic, as he says. Uh, and this goes back to 9-11 and George Bush and Cheney. Um, these people are never held accountable. If you look at Bush and Cheney, obviously. Um, yeah. In fact, if you want. Uh, yeah. So I guess the question remains then, OK, what is the fundamental drive of someone like a Gates? Yeah. And I, I think you could summarize that in two words, population control. Yeah. And that I father. think that uh, I mean that phrase in every possible interpretation of those words. Of course, we are trained to think of population control in terms of the overpopulation problem that we've been propagandized about for half a century at the very least at this point. Well, a couple of centuries, if you go back to the Malthusian um, first pseudoscientific formulation of that failed hypothesis. But at any rate, 
population control. And of course, it was the Rockefellers who were uh, forming the Population Council out of the ashes of the American Eugenics Society back in the middle part of the 20th century, who really helped to um, foster that that viewpoint um, amongst the general public. And Gates, I think, has picked up that mantle. And of course, part of that is about population control, yeah. as he talked about, for example, in that infamous TED speech where he talked about um, that, that equation. And one of these factors has to get down to zero. And of <laughs> course, us. population was part of that equation he was yeah. talking about. But anyway, um, but also in terms of population control as in controlling the population. And we see that manifested in the other sort of strange spokes in this Gates hub. And there's, okay, I, I guess I can understand he cares about the, you know, the poor African children. That's why he funds all of these medical interventions in Africa, or at least that's the cover, right? Well, how about then tying that into digital identification and digital uh, payment infrastructures? And what's, what is his role in all of this? And of course, it all comes down to that concept of population control. You know, that's I'd never thought of it like that because we've always talked about population control, gone back to his father and Planned Parenthood. Um, they always happen to put them in the poorest communities and they champion that type of thing. But it, it's interesting when you think about the control and the other verbiage of it actually controlling us. And that's what they're really doing. And as far as population control, <laughs> um, our birth rates right now are the lowest in decades. Um, and it, and again, the way they plan things out, they always have more than one objective, and that is certainly one of them. Uh, for an entire year, people were afraid to shake hands. So, of course, uh, the birth rates are going to fall. Um, and now they have really championed the digital age um, where they really keep people separated. Like I, Most people talk to people through the phone. Uh, than they do in person these days. So they've really developed quite a technique to keep people And away. not even talk. I mean, even that is not true Great because point. most people Text. are just texting now. And, th and th that's not a, a trivial distinction. No, no, we're, I mean, we're yeah. truly changing the way that we communicate with each other. Um, this relates to something else that uh, is near and dear to my heart. I've, I've thought about this a long time. I did a documentary series called The Media Matrix that people might want to check out where I talked about the development of mass media and how fundamentally that has transformed our society and where it's going from here. Because if you think just the fact that now we're all just texting each other and not talking face to face is, is important, well, it's, it's going to get much, much crazier in the near future as the augmented reality and VR and all of that starts to starts to really take over normal human interaction. And I think there's huge changes that are coming, and that's absolutely related to that population control agenda. Absolutely. And, I, and I'll save my follow up question kind of to that to the end, kind of where we're going. Uh, all great information. And, and again, that, that four-part documentary uh, to the listeners, that the four-part documentary, uh, please find it on CorbettReport.com and watch it. it. It will blow you away how you get into the nooks and crannies of the, that information. It's really great stuff. Uh, next, we're going to uh, talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, uh, Oklahoma City. Um, and Terrence Yakey, we'll get to him in a moment. But uh, just off the top, what were the main objectives of... Um, April 19th, 1995. Well, again, I mean, I, I suppose we could summarize a lot of this in a similar way. Um, population control, an early manifestation of the um, of the sort of the, the precursor to what was really ushered in with 9-11 in terms of the homeland security state. Yeah. And we see this as some of the legislation that was forwarded in the wake of Oklahoma City um, that then 
retrospectively, Joe Biden tried to take credit for the Patriot Act That's because right. it was part of what he was pushing in the wake of this crime omnibus bill, etc., that was being pushed in the wake of the OKC yep. bombing. So we see certainly similar a, a similar sort of 9-11 like event, but pre 9-11 and similar also in the sense that it also stinks to high heaven in terms of all of the documentable evidence that we have that there was something tr- truly, truly um, perverse going on there. And it, it you'll forgive me, it's been a, a, about a decade since I've covered this in great detail, so I won't have all of the facts off the top of my head, but I would direct people in the direction of a documentary that I did on the secret life of Timothy McVeigh, which goes into some of the very, very strange aspects of this mm-hmm. patsy, collaborator, whatever exactly McVeigh was. I do think of him in a similar way as a Lee Harvey Oswald. Sure, 100%. Insofar as maybe Oswald... I'm willing to even say, well, maybe he really was did have a, his finger on the trigger on November 22nd, 1963. But I don't think that he was certainly the mastermind or the only person involved in that, Heck. even if he was firing a gun. Yeah. Same way with Timothy McVeigh. Well, maybe he was involved in building a bomb, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think he was the mastermind. And we can take that from many, many different um, sources. Even Timothy McVeigh himself, who most people don't realize um, and don't know, he wrote a letter to his sister. Um, in which he was saying, oh yeah, you know how I washed out of special forces and, uh, I, I came home all disillusioned. Well, why do you think that was? No, I didn't wash out. They actually took me aside and they, they made me part of this special team that was going to do drug running and government assassinations, et cetera, et cetera. This was at any rate, what McVeigh was claiming. He was also claiming that he was microchipped in his ass and, yep. um, was going crazy for mind control and all sorts of other stuff. And then he was shut away and not really heard from again until his execution, at which point at least one of the witnesses in the room said they continued to see him breathing after he was pronounced dead. And then he was taken away in a hearse that was later admitted to have been a decoy that did not have his body. So question after question with regards to McVeigh and specifically his role. And how about Nichols, his convicted co-conspirator who is still languishing in prison, um, trying but not being act- actively suppressed by the judge who will not let him be deposed, um, despite the fact that he has made a declaration to Kenneth Trinidu, um, Jesse Trinidu, sorry, Kenneth Trinidu's brother, who I've talked to before, that he, that there were absolute, there was a, uh, a federal informant and a high-ranking government official that what that he knows by name was involved in that plot. He has talked about it in, in the declaration that I, I have hosted up on my site. It's elsewhere out, out there online. Um, just so much with regards to that story and the, the, the bomb squad was there two hours ahead of time. Someone called in saying that the Murrah building had been blown up 24 minutes before the bomb went off, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much with regards to what happened there. Um, at any rate, the more people look into it, the more they will realize that exact, if you're, if you are suspicious about 9-11, you should definitely, definitely not believe the official story of OKC. Uh, agreed 100%. And in regards to Timothy McVeigh, uh, I spent some time in the military and I can tell you uh, that this guy, uh, I'm sure you remember, he was part of uh, General Schwarzkopf's uh, security team uh, during Operation Desert Storm. And in order to get that close to a general who was in charge of CENTCOM during a, a war, you're, you're going to get screened. You're not going to be just some flake. Um, so yeah, the, the story doesn't add up. There was some video, whether it's real or not saying that he was, it looked like he was working on, a, I think it was an M 1113 tracked vehicle in like Wisconsin, uh, after his Perhaps. execution. Um, you know, whether or not that's real. Oh, after. Yeah. After. Yeah. Um, 
And then, of course, the other thing was, if I remember correctly, what, were they trying to say they were having a difficult time with the vein and they put the, the needle in his leg on his, on his execution day? Am I remembering that correctly? I think so. I'd have to look up the details again. But, um, but at any rate, I mean, and then there's all the questions about the CCTV footage and all of the footage of all of the different businesses all going out at the exact time that the rider truck was yeah. supposedly passing by. And then the footage that we know exists. There are eyewitnesses who talked about it. It was talked about on the news. There is footage exists of uh, McVeigh parking the rider truck, getting out. There was another person in the rider truck, which right. John Doe number two. All of this is on footage. But the FBI apparently just can't find that footage. Uh, a judge has literally um, uh, called out the FBI on that and said he thinks they're lying, et cetera, et cetera. But what are you going to do? Anyway, so, so much the, with the, regards the to that. dollar question, what are we going to do? And of course, they moved it out of Oklahoma City and they put uh, they held the trial in the city that many people consider the, the headquarters of the NWO in uh, Denver, Colorado, right? Yeah. And who who blew up the Murrah building and cleaned away the evidence afterwards? Oh, right. The exact same people who were working on the uh, cleanup of World Trade Center and, and uh, right. controlled demolition and coming out and saying, oh, don't worry, guys, this was this was not controlled demolition. What you saw in 11. Just a coincidence. You silly conspiracy theorist. Um, Terrence Shakey, uh, I spend a lot of time every April 19th and I do play the audio for your uh, requiem for the suicided. Uh, so here's a guy who was um, he served in Desert Storm, actually. Got out of the military, became, uh, I believe, an Oklahoma City police uh, officer. And I think he was actually writing a speeding ticket when the explosion went off. And he was one of the first people on the scene. And he spent the better part of the day, you know, rescuing people. And then, uh, you know, we come to find out that he saw something uh, within that rubble that didn't add up to the official narrative. And to make a long story short, uh, short excuse me, he, he was murdered for his troubles. First of all, how did you come upon uh, the Terrence Shakey story? And, I mean, that that to this day, it, it's it's really a combination of sadness and, and being infuriated. So here's a guy who was, to say he was a hero would be the understatement of the century. Served his country proudly, and then he 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 went in and say you know pulled all those people out that day. And just because he was pushing for the truth, I mean, if you don't understand how evil and nefarious these people are, if they can kill someone like Terrence Shakey. The, the, they can do that to everybody. What What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Well, I, I it's a good question, actually. I don't, at this point, I don't recall what was, how I found out about that story or where I first heard it from, but I did do a podcast on it, Requiem for the Suicided Terrence Yakey, which was part of a series that I did on the suicided, i.e. people who committed suicide officially, but Friends of Clint. clearly did not do yeah. that. And uh, again, in the Yakey case, it's very clear that he didn't slash his wrists and then drag himself from his car over a fence uh, a mile down a field and then shoot himself in the head, um, as is supposedly the official story on that one. Anyway, um, yeah, he, uh, cop of the year, not just any cop, cop of the year, uh, honored, decorated, everyone had only good things to say about him. But whatever he saw, as you say, one of the first people on the scene that day, and like like so many of the brave, genuine heroes of 9-11, the first responders who who saw the the craziness and the chaos and ran into it to help save people, that's exactly what Yeki was doing uh, all day. And he saw something in there that did not add up, that was not part of what they were saying on the news. And we don't know exactly what that was, because he had... He had tried to blow the whistle on this. He had tried to talk to his superiors about it. 
Um, and obviously other people knew that he had some sort of information that did not square up with the official story. He had told his family and uh, co-workers, etc., cetera, uh, that there was something going on. And he had compiled that information and he was actually on the way to deliver that information. I can't remember to whom he was delivering it at that time when he was suddenly found dead in a field and uh, declared a suicide. So um, it's just another aspect of the story that, again, unfortunately, again, what what do we do with this? All we know is the the official story does not add up. And we know that he had something to say that would have gone completely against whatever was being broadcast on the news at that time. And interestingly enough, this is one of those stories. It's been out obviously now for a couple decades, a few decades at this point, and uh, has always been treated as, oh, you know, conspiracy theorists say there's some sort of something to look at here. But lo and behold, I think it was just, was it earlier this year or late last year? At any rate, in the very, very recent past, CNN came out with this blockbuster, big deep dive exploration of the Terence Yickey case. And you know what? It actually isn't a terrible exploration. They do get into some of the details there and some, some of the important information. But why? Why would they come out with this decades and decades later? And we can all speculate about why they might be coming out with some of this information right now. Perhaps it's simply too late for it to matter politically, as it were. But at any rate, there you go. Um, as it turns out, again, as I say, I wish I was totally out to lunch and completely crazy and all of this was nonsense. Yeah. But then you get, you know, hard hitting investigative reporters coming along a decade plus after my work, decades after the real pioneers of this research who put all of this information together and basically trying to tra- take credit for the information that they had been putting out for years. Yeah, it is truly a tragic tale. And uh, I want to say it was a year or two, maybe it was 97, maybe even 98. Uh, that his wife, whom I believe at the time he was actually reconciling with, they had been separated, then they were getting back together. Um, she actually did a radio show in Oklahoma City. And I think I played that on April 19th as well. And um, you can hear the, the fear in her voice. I think she understood what she was up against. And I think that was the last time I ever heard her say anything publicly very much like the young lady who was a specialist in the army. It was her first day back uh, at the Pentagon when the Pentagon got hit. Um, yeah. a, a lot of these people who tell these stories and then they just disappear and you yeah. always wonder what happened. And, and you know what? Here is a, a part of the, I think the main takeaway from the whole Requiem for the Suicided series I've done is if you are ever in such a position and you know something, don't tell people you know something. And then just kind of like scurry around with that information. Get that information out every way you can, sure. as quickly as possible, as widely as you can, as publicly as you can, because uh, otherwise you're very likely to end up suicided. Yeah, that that that's that's a great point. Um, well, we you know again the controllers are uh, very nefarious. So again, thank you for your work on uh, Terrence Jakey. It was an incredible story and. I feel for his mother. I've seen interviews, a few very brief uh, moments with his mother and I think his sister, and they, they're just uh, destroyed at what happened to him. Um, and then you just get lost in the shuffle. Just look here in the United States. He's Palestine uh, in Maui. These these should be huge stories. And they just get just run over uh, it, with the mainstream media. The next story, the next story, the next story. Uh, I'm glad that people like yourself remember and go back and, and talk about these heroes and, and we remember them and keep them uh, at the forefront. Uh, lastly, I wanted to talk about COVID and again, 
uh, they, you know, 19 years after 9-11, there's the COVID, that, num- that number 19 comes up a lot. 19 hijackers, COVID-19. Um, but again, here's this thing where they shut down the entire country. People are willing to give up their freedoms. And, and I will tell you as a side note, James, I'm writing a, a column this week for Veterans Today. And, and in it, uh, I talk about how I don't think people really understand uh, how how hard freedom is. People say they want to be free, but but if you think about actual freedom, that means educating your children, uh, doing everything that you take your 40% of taxes and you give to the government, say, in exchange for my 30 or 40%, you're going to educate my kids, you're going to give me Social Security. Uh, in order to obtain real freedom, it's, it's a lot of hard work, and I think people don't really understand it. Um, so going back to COVID again, uh, obviously we know their end state was very much the same as 9-11 in Oklahoma City. It was more um, power to certain entities, uh, locking people down. And then they also shared for the first time, they gave uh, everyday ordinary people a little sniff of that of, of that power. You remember walking into Walmart without your mask on? Excuse me, mister, you better get that mask on. So we really saw a changing of the guard and going up to the next level uh, as far as the tyranny that we saw here in the United States. And I'm afraid to say uh, we still have several more layers to go. But what is your right. biggest one or two takeaways from from what happened with COVID? Yeah, well, an observation that I've had caused to make a number of times on the podcast in the past um, is that humans are the most studied animal. I don't think of humans as an animal, but right. essentially, if you're looking at what is studied by scientists, uh, it's mostly about humans. Even when scientists are studying animals, it's generally about, well, how does this apply to humans? And perhaps no more so than in the social sciences and in psychology and uh, better understanding of how to manipulate masses of people. And that has been a, a science and an art form that's been worked on, I mean, demonstrably for the past century, since it was really uh, codified and documented and written about um, by Edward Bernays talking about propaganda yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. The, the, this is definitely something that has been worked on and um, tailored. And we've seen the fruits of that over the past few years in the way that people were weaponized against each other. The weaponization of the, uh, not the top-down vertical hierarchy, but the horizontal That's right. hierarchy, as it were, of policing each other, the crabs in the bucket trying to pull each other down. And that instinct, unfortunately, is extremely an extremely powerful one. Um, it's why the snitch state ultimately works so effectively, so horribly effectively, um, because people do like that little taste of power. And there oh, are sure. people who will definitely go for that when they see it. Um, also, the weaponization of, of phrasing. And I think if there was ever sort of a, a, a better example of the weaponization of language itself than um, two weeks to flatten the curve, or social distancing, or these other ideas that were planted in the social consciousness in in those those first few vital weeks and months of the generated crisis. Uh, well, I can't think of many better examples off the top of my head. It's a perfect example of how so many people can be led along. And what I think it ultimately exposes is a lack of understanding of first principles. What do we really believe? really truly hue to as a society and for for me for myself as something i've articulated for many years so i didn't have to think about it it's health freedom that you have the uh, you have the the right certainly to take 
any precaution that you deem necessary for yourself, your health, your safety, your your family. You can do whatever you want to do, including sealing yourself up in a her uh, that's right. her, hermetic sealed bubble. <laughs> yeah. So you whatever, whatever you want to do, totally within your right. But that right cannot infringe on my right to my own bodily autonomy. That's right. what I deem to be the the proper precautions that I should or shouldn't be taking. And unfortunately, since most people do not do not even think about first principles, they can easily be led along uh, the path of emergency. Therefore, whatever, whatever we say goes and people are put into that fight or flight fear response, the reptilian brain. And what is the what is the ultimate structure of this? What is happening? That was best articulated, at least for my money, by Giorgio Agamben, who is an Italian philosopher um, historian, writer, um, who has written some really important books in the past. I talked about one of them with regards to emergency legislation in general. He wrote a book, I think 2005 about the history of emergency law, etc., And, um, what that, the, the history of jurisprudence surrounding that very interesting, but specifically it was from Agamben that I first heard the, the term biosecurity. And he, he talked about what this is, the new biopolitics that was coming into view in which, um, essentially the, I mean, you could phrase it as the body is the, is the battlefield at this point or something along those lines, but essentially the, uh, the weaponization of, um, political engagement, even social engagement and the, the vilification of that and making that into a political act, which of course is ultimately about the ultimate granular control of society down to the individual level, which is exactly what we see with the institution of the lockdowns, etc. He wrote a very, very slim volume that I have up on my shelf here. Um, I'm not going to remember the name of it, so <laughs> let me grab it here. Uh, where are we now? Um, and it's a very slim volume, just collecting some of his essays that he wrote, but an extremely important book that I would definitely recommend for people who want to understand biosecurity, what it is, the agenda behind it. Um, he has some really important points to make on that. I'll put that link in the I'll find it on Amazon or whatever, and I'll put it in the show description. So if people want to find that uh, as well, but you're right that, that the scam that they used, uh, they love divide and conquer, right? Are you a Democrat or Republican? Are you a Cowboys fan or a Redskins fan? Uh, are you for the vaccine? Or are you anti-vaccine? They always find a way to, to put that bait down <laughs> low enough and we all fight amongst ourselves. Uh, because it's like that part of the bug's life when we, you know, that the, the guy's saying, you know, they're the 99 percent. If they ever really find out what's what we're doing, uh, there's going to be hell to pay. So uh, a big part of their plan is to keep us fighting amongst each other. So, uh, you know, that the spotlight is not on that. That's exactly, exactly right. Uh, it's in such an important part of this. And as I say, the the weaponization of the, the, uh, the uh, horizontal hierarchy and Getting people to police each other and fight with each other is such an important part of the way that this operates. And I've attempted to draw attention to this in many different forms over the years, because I think this is one of the key fundamental insights that we need to have in order to overcome this. Um, but uh, for example, people could check a recent editorial I wrote on context is everything in which I, I showed that famous image and I'll, I'll have to try to describe it here, but there's the famous sort of op-ed cartoon of the politician who's giving a speech at the stump and he's on a, a plank one end of the plank hovering over this gigantic chasm the other end of the plank is being propped up by all the people who are standing on the plank listening to this politician's speech and one guy 
is turning around and walking away, walking off the plank. And the implication, of course, is, you know, if everyone stopped listening to this guy and giving their attention and energy to this guy, he'd be gone. It wouldn't, that solves itself. That problem solves itself right away. We have the power. We, it's ultimately about us and what we are devoting our time, our energy, our attention into bringing into fruition in this world. We are either creating communities that are, that are functioning in the way we want or we're just going along with the flow, listening to whatever the next politician is prom- promising us, and we will be put into this hierarchy of control. And the choice is ours. And it's such an important thing for us to understand that, at least while we still can, before the whatever transhuman nightmare of the future of yeah. brain chips and mind control and nanobots and whatever craziness is coming. At the very least, for this time being, I still have control of my That's right. mental fac- faculties. I still have my intellectual sovereignty. And we better be flexing those muscles, learning that we have those muscles, flexing them, practicing them, getting them, uh, what is it, uh, uh, progressive overload, not of our physical muscles, well, that too, but also our our intellectual muscles. That's right. And then going back to the matrix, um, you know, they've made it, uh, everything is so expensive. So mom's got to work, dad's got to work. You know, they're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. They come home, they drink a beer, they go to sleep and, and it's rinse and repeat. So again- the matrix they've created. Um, l- luckily, folks like us, mate, we're at a point of, in our life where we have time to do these things. But uh, again, they, they've created this web where, where everybody is just non, it's a nonstop world. And it's very important where we are at right now. And, and we're coming up on the hour mark. And, and I want to wrap this up because I know you're very busy and I promised you an hour. Um, but now I think is more critical as a time as ever, because I think COVID was a test. They wanted to see where we were at as society, as far as compliance. And I believe that we failed miserably, not we, me and you, but I think uh, society as a whole, uh, while I do think they overplayed their hand and, and as 2022 and 23 came about, I think a lot of people did wake up because of it. Um, but to, to see people shut down churches and, and all the, the, th- the horrible things that we saw over that time, I think we, we failed miserably. So, Uh, I think now, not tomorrow, not next week, now is the time for people uh, to act on their own behalf. Because like you said, if we don't have physical autonomy, if we can't even control our our own bodies, we're done as a society. So we owe it to our children and our grandchildren uh, to take action and not just kick the can down to the next generation, which is something that has happened um, for a long, long time. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with your summarization there i think it is absolutely essential that we uh, as i as i've always posited as long as humanity remains fundamentally humanity i think we'll always be able to overcome various tyrannies that will come there will be times of dark darkness taking over and dark ages etc but humanity has always been able to struggle out of that because fundamentally there is something about the human nature that will not abide simple, abject tyranny and slavery. And so that that is the hope, as it were. But unfortunately, the question of what is human um, is at least subject to change in the near future, given the types of technologies that we have. And can the human spark be extinguished forever is a question that unfortunately we're more and more uh, facing head on. So while we are still here, and while, again, do not listen to and just believe whatever... James Corbett is saying, or anyone else. No, no, no. You, at the very least, you know that you are real and you are in control of yourself and your own mind. 
So you best be using that uh, that faculty in order to, as I say, either work towards the bringing into the existence what you want in this world or simply going along with the flow in that matrix cocoon web and basically coasting to your your grave. Um, I think those are those are our options on the table. And it's it's pretty stark when you put it that way. And it's certainly it's certainly not easy. As you say, yeah. freedom is not an easy option, which is why it will never be the most popular option. Um, when people have the, okay, you can be convenient and lazy and go along with the flow, or you can struggle valiantly your entire life. And of course that doesn't guarantee any sort of future for the future generations. They have to make that choice as well. Most people are going to take the convenient lazy route. Um, one thing that works in our favor is that most people will go along with what most people are doing. So in times of um, in times when there is a widespread understanding of conspiracy and false flag, etc., most people will be like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's man manipulations and machinations that happen. If there was a widespread understanding of fundamental core principles about physical and bodily autonomy and health freedom, etc., then I think most people would kind of go along with that. Unfortunately, most people can be manipulated by the mass media that tells them you're the crazy yep. <laughs> wingnut who nobody thinks like you. Don't believe your lying eyes. No, you're the only one and you should feel ashamed. Unfortunately, that does work on a lot of people. As I say, psychology has been weaponized and aimed at us for, for many, many decades or centuries at this point. So anyway, it's it's certainly an uphill struggle and I'm, uh, I, I, I can't guarantee whatever the end result of this will be, but I can guarantee what the end result will be if we simply lay over, roll over and take whatever's coming to us. I know that does not end in a pretty way. So we have to start standing up for our physical and intellectual sovereignty. Amen for that, brother. And uh, again, James Corbett, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your very busy schedule to uh, share your knowledge with my listeners. And of course, folks, it's CorbettReport.com. The link will be in the show description. And James, if I, I'll give you the last word if you have anything you wanted to add, uh, website, social media, etc. I will uh, just direct people to CorbettReport.com. As I say, all my work is there. So um, please make use of it as a resource. Another th thing that might be appropriate to this conversation is my brief history of hopium, in which I talk about how people can be roped in yeah. by politicians time and time again, promising you the moon. Oh, if only Trump were in charge yeah. during the scam day. Oh, wait, he was. Mm. So uh, unfortunately, people... Every four years in the United States, every few years in various other locales, yeah. we'll get roped into the same political trick that has been used to shepherd the population to where we are at this point. And people still keep thinking they're going to vote their way out of this situation. I, I'm inclined to disagree with that. But anyway, um, I think that might be something people might want to check out. CorbettReport.com slash hopium. Well done. Turns out Trump didn't drain the swamp and Hillary's still free. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but Tom Hanks is totally in a secret FEMA underground Guantanamo Bay prison. Got it. <laughs> oh, uh, well, again, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. God bless you and continued success with all your work. And again, we'll direct everyone to CorbettReport.com. The link will be in the show description for Mr. James Corbett. I'm George, the fact hunter. God bless you all. Have a great rest of your week. And until the next time, my friends, we will see you.
说。